a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. The Democratic National Committee is looking to shake up the presidential primary calendar for 2024. It looks like the Democrats will dump Iowa and New Hampshire to make South Carolina the first state in the lineup to nominate a presidential candidate in 2024. We want to dig into, one, why the change, what's the impact, and what should be the process be as we look at presidential primary elections. And to help us break that down, Carly Cooperman, partner and CEO of Schoen Cooperman Research, one of the great, great polling organizations that give us such great insight here on Inside Sources. Carly, thanks for joining us today. Sure. Thanks for having me back. Uh, so give us some some broad brush perspective in terms of this decision. Some uh, at the high level are saying, OK, well, of course, President Biden wants South Carolina. That was uh, what saved his run in in 2020. Uh, this might be a, a little uh, reward for them. Uh, but what's the what's really at it? And how's all, how are all those conversations going? Sure. So. Look, Iowa was historically a place for underdog candidates to really start their path to the White House. Um, On the Democratic side, this includes Jimmy Carter as well as Barack Obama. And even as the demographics of the the state have shifted over the years, Iowa continued to have this kingmaker status. Um, But as the state has become older and whiter and more Republican rather than Democratic, there have been a lot of grumblings have taken place amongst the Democratic Party um, about why this was having such, um, you know, such a big influence on the primaries. And I basically think that the chaotic counting of the caucus voters that took place in 2020, where it took over a week for um, us to get those final results, that was kind of the nail in the coffin for many people inside the party. And so by shifting it, by pushing Iowa back farther, by moving South Carolina to the front of the line. Um, You know, it's an effort to bring up the increase the diversity of the states that are helping to select the nominee um, and have the states themselves, you know, with the diversity that exists in the states, change the dynamics of who is really having um, a say in the beginning, as well as have some more battleground states that have an outsized influence in the general election having an influence in the primaries as well. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And, and it's been interesting to see the arguments kind of each each state, of course, wants to be important. You know, no one wants to be the leftover after the the race is over. Uh, but it's interesting. There's There's been some uh, arguments made of, you know, maybe it should be a, a place like Minnesota or Michigan. Uh, and then there's also been the counter argument to that of, well, wait a minute, if uh, those are really expensive places to play. Uh, and would it end up that just well-funded candidates would go camp out in mm-hmm. Michigan or Minnesota, and those, as you said, those underdog candidates or less uh, known candidates just wouldn't stand a chance? Yeah, you know, one of the arguments that have been made about putting South Carolina first, aside from the fact that it's obviously a much more racially diverse state, um, it's actually not so expensive to campaign in South Carolina. And so the ability for a party to still have an underdog candidate come through in South Carolina still can be feasible because 
somebody could go live in South Carolina and, you know, build coalitions and, um, you know, do the kind of grassroots outreach that people have historically done in Iowa, where it's not so cost prohibitive there um, compared to other states. But Michigan in this plan is getting moved up significantly, too, and, and that's an increasingly diverse state as well. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. And so as you, as you look at all of that, uh, and of course every state ha- can make a case as to why they, they should be in part of a, a important thing. Is this one of those, uh, are the parties, is this going to be just a lot of internal uh, on the party side? Uh, right now we're focusing on the Democrats. Republicans will, will do the same thing later on. Uh, but is this more just internal? Is there a way to actually make this a, a rotating process, maybe regionally, uh, where you can kind of move that around from uh, from election year to election year to, to really give everybody kind of that chance to be first to weigh in? Yeah, look, in the Democrats' proposal, uh, they said that they wanted this to be revisited every four years, which, you know, I think that's a smart idea in general, right? Like, yeah. to give the chance for... Um, states on both sides of the you know, parties to adjust based on what uh, what is changing in the country and, and you know the demographics of the state and how that works. Um, but on the Democrat side specifically, I think what was so interesting about how the 2020 primary played out is that when we got to South Carolina, the way that Biden won, in contrast to some of the other candidates that were leading. Um, or just very highly in the mix to see, it really showed the limitations of some of the other candidates. For yeah. instance, some of the more liberal candidates, they really do have a more regional appeal or a bicoastal appeal like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, I, that's a fascinating thing. And there's one other area that uh, you've got me thinking about that I think is really interesting for the Democrats. Uh, and I know Senator Tester uh, raised this as well is are the Democrats making a conscious uh, conscious shift away from some of those rural voters and just maybe saying maybe those coastal things uh, there's a there's a lot of electoral votes in there uh, is that the place to to begin? Well, I, you know it's a balance, right? You know, if you're trying to reach one demographic of the electorate, you inevitably, I guess, <laughs> are spending less time focusing on others, and so there's no perfect solution. But I think what you mentioned just now are two important but different groups of voters um, by these these coastal elites, you know, that have had an outsized influence in the Democratic Party. um, Those could be different from some of the rural voters that are in the middle of the country. And so I think I think there is caution and awareness to avoid having coastal elites completely run the show um, and, you know, trying to get some of these other states that really do have an important role in the general election as swing states. 
um, have a say in, in the primary. Yeah. Uh, great insight as always. Carly Cooperman, partner and CEO of Schoen Cooperman Research. Uh, and this is just such a, a great example of looking beyond just the headlines of all of this into the nitty gritties of, uh, of all of these races, what, who they're going after and why and how that works. Maybe it works really well in a primary, but doesn't work so well in the general. Both parties have experienced a little bit of that. Uh, Carly, thank you so much for weighing in today. Sure. Thanks for having me. All right. We look forward to having Carly Cooperman back. She's a she is a great political strategist, a great research that they do there at Sean Cooperman, a trusted source for us uh, in terms of really looking at things from a strategic perspective and getting down to the real issues of it all. All right. We're going to step aside for bottom of the hour news. When we come back, Iran has uh, continued its execution of protesters. How should the U.S. respond? Amos Giora is going to join us to talk about that coming up next. Stay with us. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.